welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein, and on today's show, our guest is Joe Boyd. Joe Boyd is most well known for producing records in the 1960s. Uh, I will cherry pick some of the records that Joe Boyd produced. He produced records with Nick Drake in 1969. He also produced records with R.E.M. in 1985 and with Robin Hitchcock in 2014. Joe Boyd is the author of the book White Bicycles, Making Music in the 1960s. Uh, Joe has stories to tell, firsthand stories about recording music, uh, Pink Floyd's first single in the studio, firsthand accounts of Bob Dylan going electric at the Newport Folk Festival, and so many more stories. And he tells all those stories on a podcast that he hosted in 2015 called Joe Boyd's A to Z. And so I very recommend uh, that if you're interested in hearing stories like that, you listen to Joe Boyd's podcast. It's why we are uh, talking today on Radio Survivor. Today's interview is focusing both on Joe Boyd's podcast, A to Z, which aired 52 episodes and then uh, is done, which is very on brand for Radio Survivor to do an interview with a podcast producer and host for a defunct podcast from five years ago that we love. Um not only does Joe Boyd talk to us about his podcast, Joe Boyd's A to Z, which is still available and everyone should listen to, but we also uh, – I discovered for the first time that Joe Boyd has a jazz radio show that he produced on Pacifica Radio in 1961 when he was 19 years old, and we talk about that as well on today's episode. Joe Boyd, thank you for joining us on Radio Survivor today. A pleasure. Well, I've, I reached out to you because I'm a huge fan of your podcast, which is um, not what you're primarily known for, but I'd love to talk about um, the work that you put into your podcast and ask you how it is going and uh, find out like how you approached, um, you know, making uh, this particular piece of, of audio to share with the world. Well, I, it's not going at all. Uh, I did it four to five years ago, I think. And I really enjoyed doing it, but I have a book to write. And I thought after twice around the alphabet, uh, for those who don't know, it's called Joe Boy's A to Z or A to Z for Americans. Um, and it's 10 minute clips starting basically musical journeys triggered by a song starting with the letter in question. And um, I don't do it anymore. Right. Um, so it just is up there and people listen to it and I get a report and people seem to keep listening to it. And sometimes it gets little surges and then it sort of goes back down a little bit. And at the moment it seems to be on a little bit of an uptick. And, um, why, you know, the reason why I didn't know whether or not it was, um, whether it was ongoing or not is when you, you when you left off, you, uh, you know, you didn't sign off and say goodbye, uh, right. when you got to, when you, when you did 40, <laughs> 26 times two, when you did 42, right. uh, 52. 52. 52. Oh, what a nice round number. 52, uh, one for every week of the year. Um, that's right. Yeah. But uh, well, tell me about tell me about when you started at at AA. What what was what was going right. on for you to to create the project or not AA? Well, the first day. A the first day, yeah. 
Well, um, a series of things, uh, I suppose, came together and led me to start this project. Um, I'm, I've been a record producer most of my life. I pretty much backed off doing that. I wrote a book called White Bicycles, Making Music in the 1960s, which did pretty well. And then I started about 12 years ago writing another book on the subject of what people used to call uh, world music. And by now that won't be in the title. And I'm close to finishing the book. It's going to be finished next year and it'll be out in 2022. Um, and it's a huge project, but it's been fascinating. And I've done wonderful research and listening and traveling into music from all over our globe and um, particularly from the golden age of that. And as I write, I look at a wall which is filled with 6,000 LPs and I look at a chest of drawers which has pull out on rollers, drawers with little trays, which must have about 30,000 to 40,000 CDs. And then I have out in the hall, I have stacks and stacks of cassettes. And little by little, I'm digitizing the cassettes and the LPs, not and sometimes getting rid of the cassettes, but not getting ever getting rid of the LPs. Hmm. So, uh, my head has been full of music and of stories about music. Mm -hmm. And um, partly inspired, I suppose, by uh, knowing uh, the Kitchen Sisters and also, you know, having listened to a lot of radio. I mean, I grew up in America. I used to listen to... WBAI in New York, and I actually did a radio show for KPFK and WBFI, I mean WBAI, uh, when I was 19. Oh. I, had, I had a show called It's Tight Like That, which was jazz and blues from the 20s. Uh, and I, when I was going to Harvard, I used to go down to New York once a month and tape uh, like three or four shows, hour-long shows, and then they would run every other week. I think I was in alternation with another a guy, another presenter, and um, and I, you know, I pop up on BBC Radio quite a lot and uh, doing being interviewed, and I have friends who are presenters and stuff. So radio's around me a lot, and it, the idea of a podcast was something in my head and I started exploring what it could be and um, the um, I then investigated the legalities of playing records just on you know right and uh, I discovered that as far as PRS performing rights society in Britain was concerned if you played less than 30 seconds of a track, you didn't have any obligation. And that gave me an idea. I thought, hmm, <clears throat> well, maybe 
since I, you know, it's going to be telling stories and talking about history and triggered by music. I don't need to play the whole track. In fact, you might get in the way playing the whole track. So, ah, um, so your your original idea was to um, possibly just have a, a f- like an hour long radio yeah. show that that would spin yeah. records. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the the alphabet part of it, I think, probably came from the way that I listen to music. My wife and I are kind of now pretty addicted to this methodology. Mm-hmm. I upload systematically just idly on the side as I'm working on my book or anything else. I upload onto a big hard drive everything. And it's not all up. I only, I'm only maybe 15, 20% of my collection is up there now. But that's a lot of music. It's, you know, 20,000 titles or something. And um, and what we do is I put them in, I use iTunes as a medium, as a, a sorting to sort them. Sure. And I, and I upload them at full strength. No MP3s are allowed. I do not listen to compressed sound. I only listen to, I don't, you know, go for the full 96K, 24-bit, but it's, CD quality. Sure. Can, can you tell the listeners why you've made that choice? Is it is yeah? What can you hear the difference? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's no air around an MP3. And I suppose if you're listening to a modern record, which is made on a computer and in a com- small airless little dead room right i mean some some music you don't really need the air right there's maybe a, there's a lot of music music that i love and listen to that has never never was in the air it's it is an entirely right. cyberspace sound exactly How but even that even that you know you could probably tell the difference but particularly if you're looking at a piece of music which was recorded with the Dizzy Gillespie Orchestra in a studio in New York, all playing together, um, you know, it definitely sounds very different. Right. So no, so no, none of your songs that you've been um, archiving digitally are compressed because you can hear because right. you love the sound. Uh, exactly. Because you love the sound. Exactly. I mean, occasionally there's a couple of things that are the MP3s that have crept onto my hard drive because that's the only way I could get a hold of them. But uh, but I'm always very, very chagrined when something like that happens. Um, but anyway, and so what I do is I have uh, an iPod and I download like 500 tunes from the iPod in alphabetical order by song title. Mm-hmm. So I just go to, I put the, I click song on iTunes. So they all fall into order. And I'll take the first, you know, start at the top of the alphabet, A through AC, and load those up onto my iPod and listen to them in the car, at home, in the kitchen, while I'm doing dishes or even on some occasions cooking. Um, 
or traveling. On, I mean, when the days when we used to travel, flying on an airplane, I don't even take a book. I just stick my head into my iPod and listen to whatever comes up. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because you, and that's one of the things that happens is that you get four or five different versions of the same song. And that's really the genesis of the podcast we're talking about is I was just fooling around and I looked at A, letter A, and I saw that I had like seven or eight versions of Ain't Misbehaving. And I listened to them all and they're really different. A lot of, there's so, so many different things going on there from Fat Swallow's original to Bojangles Robinson tap dancing to it with Duke Ellington's orchestra, um, you know, Louis Armstrong, Django Reinhardt, all this different, these different approaches to that song. And I knew this, I had read a book about Andy Razaf, who's the lyricist. Right. And his, extraordinary story of how he was the son of a Madagascar prince. Yeah, an African prince. Yeah, an African prince. And um, and that just gave me the idea, well, that would be fun. I could probably do that. And somebody told me that 10 minutes was the optimum time for a podcast. Huh. And so... I feel like that I is thought, a very 2015 bit of advice. Yes, and um, but it's wonderful. It, it is yeah. wonderful that your show um, you can sit and listen to six. Yeah, and um, and so I just thought I'd try it. And I actually, what happened was, I think I'm trying. This is all a bit foggy because I've, you know, it's a lot of different things were going on then. But I was I was working on a project. I can't even remember what it was, but I was being asked to help on a project it might have been something about james booker the new orleans piano player for the bbc and the producer was a guy called alan hall from falling tree productions and i sort of pitched this idea to him i thought well if i'm going to do this i need help i need somebody who knows about radio or about stuff to do this and he said, oh, that's interesting. And then one thing he said, well, look, I'm just too busy. And I said, well, listen, I've got this idea. I put some things down with a microphone. I've got some clips of music. Could you, do you know somebody who could help me put this together? And he said, well, I use a guy called Pez Andrews a lot. And he has a little studio and I said, well, where is he? And he gave me the address, and it was literally five minutes up the road from where I lived. And I thought, that's the guy I need to meet. And so I went and met Pez Andrews, and he was really a great guy. And um, and so it, I went took him this sort of mess of ideas and fragments of Ain't Misbehaving, and he and I put it together mm. in his in his studio, and we liked the results. So I said, "Oh, well, I guess I better find what something for B." <laughs> <laughs> how much? How much of that first episode was uh, written on paper? Um, I think very little. Oh. I think over the, over the years. Because mm. that's I should tell you because that is um, one of the I. 
you know, when I remembered, um, uh, we're speaking, I'll let the listeners know, we are speaking with Joe Boyd, who is the, um, who has done many things, but is also the, the producer of the podcast, Joe Boyd's A to Z. And we are talking on Radio Survivor today, um, part in part because, uh, I realized I wanted to talk to you because, um, Toots, uh, forgive me. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to fix, I'm going to fix Toots this Hibbert. problem. Ah, okay. We're talking today because Toots Hibbert, uh, passed away um was it last week and i realized i i know a lot about two tibbert because of joe boyd's podcast and then i couldn't believe that, that it was five years old and that made me want to talk to you more than ever because i remember when it was brand new um but the one of the things i told people about why i love your podcast is because it's um because it's scripted not improvised it's not it's not jokers joking into a microphone until they're tired, you know, uh, uh, taking turns, making each other laugh or, or telling their little stories. It's, you know, it's, it's got a very, um, I had assumed that you wrote down your ideas. Well, I, I do sometimes. And depending, I mean, I think with Ain't Misbehaving, I knew the story so well. Uh, and I do like, thinking on my feet and talking in complete sentences. I mean, I, one of the reasons I think I get called a lot to do interviews by the BBC about the history of music or whatever is because I'm very easy to edit. <laughs> I don't, I don't, um, I don't go, uh, well, uh, let's see. Well, uh, uh, you know, I talk in complete sentences. I sound scripted yeah well great job on the show because i had i had based on my work as a as a radio producer i had assumed that you were uh that you were going off a script because it it was a very well organized uh set of ideas in in every in every paragraph of your uh, in every minute of your podcast well i don't want to claim that i'm never scripted because what usually what would happen is i would put the music together on my computer and create a file that I would then take up to Pez's studio on a thumb drive. Right. So you would have, you would have the, 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 even as much as a dozen songs for the 10 minute yeah, episode. Little clips. Yeah. And I would even kind of crudely edit them for the bits that I right. wanted to yeah. use. And then like a I sketch, would, a sketch of your yeah, podcast. And episode. then I would put, on onto a piece of paper, a list of all the songs in the order that I, a list of the things that I was going to play in the order I was going to play them. And then depending on the subject, I would either put like key words in the gaps between the songs. And sometimes I would put whole sentences or paragraphs if I, if a way to say something that mm-hmm. I really liked came to me, I would write it down. But then when the generally when I would then be sitting in Pez's studio, I would look at the piece of paper and then put it away hmm. and then just go with what I remembered from what I had from each for each segment, not the whole show all at once, but. For each interval, right. in, interstitial. And then, how part. much? How much of the final 
pe- uh, episode of the podcast, Joe Boyd's A to Z. Um, how much of that did Pez uh, build uh, with you listening, or uh, did he do a draft for you and then send it? Um, the way we eventually worked was we would pretty much do a rough cut when I was there. Mm-hmm. And then he would say, okay, I'm going to, and then he would go back to it and do stuff with levels and smooth out the segues and, and, uh, or sometimes if I was in a hurry or he was in a hurry, I'd say, look, you know what to do. I want to come in on this verse here right after I say this. And and he would, we would layer it up on his pro tools. Sure. That's good. so that everything that I said was sitting in the right spot, roughly, and then and the music and sitting then, in the right spot. And then this podcast that you did fifty-two episodes of, uh, did you release episode A before you had uh, shared episode B? Or I mean, at some point you were yeah. you were working in real time. Yeah, I was time. doing it first. Yeah, for a while but we started doing it. And oh, there's the the other point of it was. Um, um, uh, I then was looking for a platform. Right. And um, I uh, actually, Davia Nelson from the Kitchen Sisters suggested that I contact a company called Acast, which was just starting up as a Swedish startup company. Right, because this is for listeners who have never who've never tried to put a, their own podcast out into the world. The one of the most complicated and exciting steps is to decide who is going to host your audio so that people uh, on the internet, on the world wide web, can listen to your audio at any time. And that's usually um, the most exciting step for many reasons, in, including the fact that that's where um, that's one of the only times you might have to spend money, no matter what else you have in your production. Uh, plan the the host of the audio is sort of one of the most uh, interesting bottlenecks of the podcast producers right. uh, list of questions to answer well i feel i was very very fortunate because acast was just starting up and when i contacted them they just opened a london office and i think now they're very big players in this world um, that's my impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I sent this first letter A to them. I might have even done letter B and sent it to them as well. I can't remember. But I sent them the f- sample. And then basically they came back and they said, sure. Um, and then they started talking about sponsors. And they would need a place in the middle to insert a commercial and stuff like that. And I said, ooh, ooh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. That wasn't what I had in mind. Yeah. And they said, well, I mean, that's how else do you expect us to? Otherwise, you know, we'd have to charge you a lot of money and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I said, oh, well, hmm. Let me think about that, but I don't think that's going to work. Let me try and look look for other. I, let me explore other options. Yeah, this might be again one of the reasons why your podcast remains one of my favorites. Is I am I've been a listener and a, a connoisseur of non commercial media my whole listening life, and um, I'm still I'm still a little bit 
hung up on being forced to listen to ads uh, in my ears. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I guess from the very beginning, and obviously I had to pay Pez uh, yes. to do it, um, I did not set out seeing it as a way to make money. My purpose in doing it, aside from the enjoyment and the sort of fun of, of trying this out as a medium, was that I, was, I had come to the realization that I was taking a very long time with my book <laughs> and that it would not be ready uh, in the next few years. Right, your, your book on what was originally on world, world Music. World yeah. And now you have to and, call it something else because world music is a very 90s. Well, it's a genre. very discredited it is a discredited phrase. Okay. Well, maybe we can get into that later. I, yeah. I don't want to distract us yeah, at sure. this point in the narrative. So So, um and I just like the idea that a podcast would keep me I mean I I written this book that came out in 2006, 2000, you know, White Bicycles which has done incredibly well. I mean, I think I've sold about 75,000 yeah. of them around the world. Because for and, listeners who aren't familiar with you, with your name or your work, um, your, it is, your, your book was your memoir and your life story intersects with, um, I don't, I, I can't even put the right well, I number let me on just it. Correct, let Go me ahead. just correct you. Do. I don't like to think of it as a memoir. Yeah. It's, well, it is sort of a memoir, but it's a memoir not of my life, but of the 60s. Ah. It's very much a look at the 60s. It's the subtitle is Making Music in the 1960s. And so it's not really my personal confessions of a record producer or anything. It's, it's what I observed and experienced in the music business and live touring and producing records in the studios in the 1960s. And I stretch the 60s to start in 1956 and end in 1973. Hmm. Um, but, and I used to produce a lot of records, but I haven't been producing many records lately because the music business doesn't make records the way I like to make records generally. And, and because I've been writing this book. And so I thought, well, a podcast, if I doesn't take up too much time, is kind of related to what I'm writing about. Hmm. And it'll keep the pot boiling. It'll keep, if I can get a following of the podcast, it will help pave the way for the publication of my book. It was just a vague, it wasn't really a astutely sure. figured out marketing there, idea. There it are, was more there are plenty of, vague... of worst reasons to launch a podcast in yeah. 2015. Yes, it'll help me. It'll help me uh, focus my work on my book and possibly build an audience. Exactly, and then a day later or two days later, I got—I can't remember if it was an email or a phone call—from a woman at Acast, and she said that she'd been listening to my sample. And she liked it so much <laughs> that ACAST, they decided it would be good for ACAST's image if they hosted it without commercials. Uh -huh. And so that was, I mean, a, an incredible little gift of good fortune. 
And so up it went. And um, there it is. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're speaking with Joe Boyd, who is the producer of the podcast, uh, Joe Boyd's A to Z, A to Z in, in, uh, in yeah. other parts of the world on here on Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. Um, I, I think it's I'm, – I'm excited about a handful of things that you have mentioned in the last uh, 25 yeah. minutes. One thing you mentioned is this um, – you, know, you have written books. You have produced records. <clears throat> And now, and and this podcast is like, uh, <laughs> you know, it is a little bit silly in, in my mind, Joe Boyd. I've been actually thinking about talking to you and how um, it's kind of funny to interview you about the podcast and not, you know, and not yeah. the records <laughs> you've pr- produced or the books you've written. Um, and but it's but I think it's interesting also to talk about how the. Um, you know, podcasts are such a strange one of one of the things that I'm excited about is you had a podcast in 2015, and I have a pet theory which could be entirely uh, silly, navel gazing in the extreme. But I have a pet theory that podcasts sort of peaked in 2015 um, artistically. There was so much energy and innovation, and no one had quite figured out what they were going to be or how they would make money yet that more in my view of things which could be very distorted there was more innovation and experimentation and cool ideas being thrown up onto the internet for people to listen to at that time even though i'm sure (laughs) there's plenty now but you know um but it's it's exciting to ask you uh you've written books you've produced records this podcast was something that you went back to in tiny little tidbits week after week and i wonder if it if you um if you have if there's anything to recommend to that form of creativity well i i really enjoyed it i was a bit sad to stop it but it had become i realized i was spending too much time thinking about it and that i realized that in the months and years, even before I started to, before 2015, when walking down a street, I would be thinking to myself, you know, that sentence, I'm starting that fourth paragraph of the last chapter. I don't think I like the sentence. I think I have a better way to start that paragraph. I would be having those kinds of thoughts in my head. And then I would go home, go onto the computer, open up the passage in question and change the sentence or maybe do something even different and this is your book not not the podcast yeah my book yeah and now i found myself in 2015-16 i found myself walking down the street thinking Ah. "Mm, maybe i'm now i'm going to do double p next week maybe i should do hmm that would be cool if i did that and then linked in this and then i could tell this story and I realized it was just occupying, you know, I'm, I, you know, I was then in my early 70s. I'm now in my late 70s. <laughs> I don't have that much brain's capacity, you know, so um, I, and also time, you know, it's just, it, it, I was spending time fooling around with trying different ideas and stuff like that. And I just thought, I'll just get to the end of the second time around the alphabet and I'll, draw a line under it and mm-hmm. maybe I'll come back to it but first I got to finish the book 
Yeah. Well, I wonder. Uh, uh, I wonder. Like, I'm I'm trying to do 52 episodes times 10 minutes is uh, 520 minutes worth of storytelling. Yeah. Uh, it it's um it's just interesting to me. Like, I if uh, it, in a world where we're not worried about um. Well, well, why why focus on the book more than the audio? Is it the audience that that is waiting to receive it? Well, I suppose ultimately, I think a book is forever. Yeah, you know? I mean, my life was, I have to say, changed by white bicycles. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I produced a lot of records. And people, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize you, you know, I had that record for 25 years and I never even realized you produced it. I mean, people don't look at the name on the back of the record. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the things I appreciated it. about your podcast when I discovered it five years ago. I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I owe yeah. Joe Boyd. A th- I, I should thank <laughs> Joe Boyd. And I never knew. Right. I mean, that's what's it's your sure. podcast. Uh, does not your podcast isn't entirely your own stories about the records you produced, but um, a certain percentage of the of the sounds um, are you know you ha- you played a role in helping uh, get them to to the ears of the world. Yeah, and and I mean the book is, I mean I have to say it's for me way more important than a podcast. I mean I've been working particularly I've been working on it for like over ten years. Yeah. And and it's going to be a doorstop. It's going to be a big book. Yeah, the and, book about world music, which is yes. not which is and no I don't longer going to be about yet. world music. What? Well, it's going to be about the great, the golden ages of global music, about global the backstories of salsa and samba and reggae and Graceland and you know, yeah, the Paul Eastern Simon European, album. yeah, uh, Balkan music, whatever the stories of how this music got to us and the feedback loop and all the, the sort of great stories that, that, I mean, there are fantastic stories in there and it's been fantastic, wonderful for me to dig into all of them and research them and discover them and enlarge upon them. And, and I've, I'm very, you know, and I'm very gratified. I'm confident the book will be well received and people will like it because I threw it out there last summer, a year ago, to publishers in Britain, and we had a bidding war. <laughs> so, yeah. and so I, I'm I'm excited about it. I love the and I, I've never had a bidding war about my podcast. Yeah, exactly. To and answer your question, yeah, and um, and I love I love both things. And I, it, when I read the book in the future, I will yeah. I will have to become my own um, uh, audio book radio producer what you know it's i'm gonna have to go to the streaming services that i whichever whichever ones i am at that moment uh giving my money to i'm gonna have to program my own listening uh to hear all the great music that you're describing the stories of in your book and what i love about your podcast joe boyd is that i don't have to do that work i get to sit back and right. listen to the stories and the sounds that go with the stories and um 
I think that that's also very exciting, right? I mean, books have been around for a, a long time, a beautifully yeah. long time, and we, we know what to do with them. And audio storytelling is relatively new in comparison, and uh, it's not really it's not really clear yet, right? Do we, you know, yeah. there's audiobooks could have been, I mean, talking on records is, has been a part of records the whole time. But they were short in the beginning, uh, and so now that Wait, we... go ahead. I have, I have to say, Eric, you just gave me an idea, and maybe this—who knows? This might be a historic moment, um, <laughs> because one thing for sure, I did—I produced my own audio book of White Bicycles. Mm-hmm. I read it myself, and I. Working with an engineer, I edited it. And in my negotiation with the publisher for this next book, I insisted that I would do the same with the audiobook. Mm. And I've, you know, resisted any attempts on their part to approve or possibly suggest somebody else to read the book or to produce it themselves. I'm going to produce it. I'm reading it. But you just gave me an idea, which is in the audiobook, the 30 second rule could apply equally well. Yeah. Maybe. Although maybe not, because I think uh, the artist's rights are not the same, perhaps, in an audiobook which is sold. Yeah, I know it can get very complicated. We've talked about it on Radio Survivor quite a bit. Yeah, I think actually. I take it back. It probably wasn't a great idea. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> but it, but it, it is a good idea as um, for the listeners, and it is a good idea for the art form. Um, it's not a good idea at all once once you have to consult um, consult the lawyers. Who I'm not yeah. trying to run down the work yeah. of the lawyers. We do we do appreciate artists getting paid for their work when their work is being used in other in other yeah, places. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, one of the one of my favorite radio producers uh, would essentially uh, over his uh, he 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 was his name was um, his name was Don Joyce and Don Joyce worked at KPFA uh, making radio for for decades and essentially Don Joyce would some days his work on the radio late night radio was um, very surreal and very um, chaotic. But a lot of his episodes, which are available on archive.org now, they're being archived by his former uh, collaborators and coworkers uh, with the band Negative Land. Um, a lot of the work is essentially uh, like pirate documentaries. Don Joyce, uh, one of my favorite episodes that I recently listened to of Don Joyce is uh, his on his four-hour chaotic soundscape of a radio program that's very surreal – and very um, innovative. He's also making new connections about the work and the music of Brian Eno in a way that is, you know, this now is this particular episode of his radio program is one of my favorite Brian Eno sound documentaries. But if Don Joyce needed to uh, make a CD and release this Brian Eno documentary, uh, it would be impossible. The you know the rights to the music would would stop yeah. the project, and that's sure. 
that's uh, that that has come up on Radio Survivor more than twice. We've also talked with a lot of archivists, yeah, uh, who 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 are doing very important work to preserve the sounds of radio interviews, the very important work of preserving sounds of records. Uh, but it then becomes very complicated to allow people to access those sounds. Yeah, I mean, people say to me when I talk about my book, they say, oh, are you going to have a CD or two enclosed with the book? I say, well, if I did, the, the composers and artists on the CDs would get all the royalties. Yeah. <laughs> um, it wouldn't be possible. So um, it's a whole different but we world of rights. But I'm happy that your podcast exists. Uh, let's put it that way. Because so am I. I. I just went back and re-listened to it in the last for the last few weeks. I've been listening every morning. My wife and I get a cup of coffee and listen to one of them. Huh. And and I've uh, I've been I've been in you know some of them I think uh, could have done that better, but a lot of them I think oh that's very nice. Which uh, instead of me doing it, which one would you recommend listeners start with? I mean, A, obviously. Well, yeah, A is fun to start with. I can't remember what they are. Let's see. Um, um, I quite like L, in a way. It's, it's fun because it's cross-cultural. Uh, it's one about the horse races. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a very good example of the the way that you're making on your show, why I like your show, the way that you're making these connections yeah. across the entire spectrum of songs <laughs> yeah. right and and how you know if you if if you're not limited to genre the way that radio defines genre yeah. music genre or the way that uh, cd marketplaces define genre um there's a lot to be said about a lot of music well and and i think one of the things i enjoy about the process and about and one of the reasons i I took to it and enjoyed doing it is because um, I like discursive conversation, you know, where you start out talking about one thing and then something that is mentioned there leads you down a little side road into a whole other thing. Right. I should, I should let listeners know because I just blasted right through it. But the L episode that you're referring to is a series of songs, half a dozen songs, each one, about horse race horses. Yeah, they're all sort of triggered somehow by because the, the L. Like, I guess this is not a spoiler to give away the fact that L stands for long shot kick the bucket, which was a very famous ska number from Jamaica in the sixties about a horse race everybody was betting on that fell and died <laughs> before he reached the finish line. Yeah. And uh, and then it made me think of other songs from American country and tango and other places that uh, are about horse races or horses that died. Um, anyway, yes. Yeah. Well, and that's that's a that's why I like your podcast, Joe Boyd A to Z, because it makes those connections. Uh, and yeah. you know, let's Joe Boyd. I, we could go on. Uh, Let's let I want to talk again. I want to go back to talk about your radio program. It's tight like that. Your okay. jazz your jazz radio program. So it aired on WBAI and on KPFK, the yes. the New York affiliate of the Pacifica radio station and the LA affiliate of the radio station. 
uh, yeah. the radio network in in uh, when you were very young. When I was very young. Um, and again, it's it's like amazing things have happened to me. <laughs> I guess if you if you would just assume that they might, sometimes they do. Um, I had I was obsessed with visiting collectors when I was in my teens and taping their 78s. Uh-huh. And I had a big collection of, uh, I had a Wallenzak tape recorder and a big collection of um, reel-to-reel tapes with 78 RPM blues and jazz uh, on them. And when I was, I went, I left Harvard for half a year and went to work for a record company in L.A. And I started listening to KPFK and I heard Phil Elwood, who oh. was a, who was actually a San Francisco Bay Area based uh, jazz broadcaster yeah. and writer, and he had a show, and I thought to myself, completely naive. I mean, completely stupid and naive. But you know, hey, I was nineteen. Um, I said, I'll go out to KPFK because I didn't realize that he wasn't in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll offer to swap him. <laughs> he could copy yeah. some of my tapes, and I can maybe tape some of his collection. Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, tell me, tell me about Phil Elwood's show a little bit. Why did it matter? Well, it was a jazz show on KPFK, and it played a lot of old stuff. And you know, he talked. He was entertaining, and he talked about uh, old jazz and blues and. You know, I can't even remember that well, but I was, I only heard it once or twice. And I thought, well, I'll go. And I mm-hmm. found out where where the station was. And I just kind of went out there and knocked on the door. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. Yeah. And they said, oh, well, Phil Elwood isn't here. He's in San Francisco. Yeah. And I said, oh. And this guy just happened to come out when I was there. And he said, "What? what's this conversation about? And I was talking to the receptionist. And I told him, and he said, "Come into my office." <laughs> and it turned out he was the boss. And I, he said, "What kind of records do you have?" And so I started talking about, "Well, I've got some Tampa Red with George Tom, and I've got, you know, all these rare things." I started, you know, banging on about how cool they were. <laughs> because you also had your tapes. Yeah, the, so I had my tapes, the archives and so, of other people's. Yeah, other people's collection. Yeah, and and so he said to me, um, "Would you like to do a show yourself?" Wow! <laughs> and I said, the early nineteen sixties, right? This is nineteen sixty one. Yeah, and I said, "Well, I, I never thought about that, but sure." You know. <laughs> And so he said, well, come in here next weekend on Saturday and you can have some time in the studio and just do a little 15-minute sample of what you would do, Mm -hmm. you know. And he said, we got a lot of jazz records here in the library. You can use some of them. You can use your tapes. You can use whatever you like. And so I did. And I came up with the idea of calling it It's Tight Like That. And, um, um, And then he said, okay. Uh, every other because because it turned out that Elwood, I don't know, there was some rivalry between KPFK. I later discovered, yeah, between KPFA and KPFK, and Elwood 
gave them one every other week or something, and they, I don't know, I can't remember the whole politics of it, but they <laughs> liked the idea of generating I'll, their own program. Yeah, I'll check in with our uh, Radio Survivors uh, founder, Matthew Lassar, is the Pacifica historian. Right. The, yeah. uh, he's written two books. I'll see if he can fill in any yeah. details. For well, me. and also, but also, I had a, I. You could tell him I had a quite a significant, accidentally significant role because what happened in Pacifica's history? Because um, when I went back east, WBAI had just started to take my show. Mm -hmm. KPFK wouldn't. KPFA wouldn't touch it. Phil uh -huh. wouldn't like it. Oh no! Sorry to hear that. Uh, and uh, uh, just because we're nerds here, your show was uh, was was recorded onto magnetic reel to reel and mailed across the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in 1961. How else? I don't know. <clears throat> there's always a way, right? I don't. I mean, there's not yeah. much of another way. Right. And so they arranged with BAI because they said they wanted more of my shows. So I arranged with BAI that I could go into BAI and record them in New York. Huh. And they would send them out to KPFK. And so at one point, when I was really into it, I was doing like every other week. So I would come down from Harvard to New York, do three or four shows. And then I had this ambitious idea that I would, um, I would do a series on the blues, the blues, because I interviewed this guy who did a lot of field recordings in the South uh, called Harry Oster. Mm -hmm. I would do the blues as folk music. And then I would do the blues as popular music. And I persuaded Ahmet Erdogan from Atlantic to do an interview with me, although he in fact never did it. Um, and then I had this other idea. The th third part of this blues idea was to interview somebody on the subject of the blues as jazz. Mm. And I called up a guy who was doing a show for non-commercial radio in Philadelphia, who I used to listen to when I was growing up in Princeton, New Jersey. And he had written a book about Bessie Smith. Mm. And he was a Dane or a Swede who had moved to America. And anyway, I called him up. He was very nice. And he came up to New York and he did my show, as did Harry Oster. So I had the blues as jazz with Chris Albertson. And Chris Albertson had never been to the WBAI. He was a Philadelphia guy. Yeah. And he came in and did my show. And he looked around. Do you know which uh, station? I, I hate to I hate to ask you a question. I, I uh, can't remember. I can't remember what station. The Philadelphia but, station. Yeah, we'll figure it out someday. Right. But the key part of this story is that two months later, when I came down to BAI to do my recording, who was the new head of the station? Chris Albertson. <laughs> He had been fascinated by it and had stayed around after because I think I had to leave and I introduced him to somebody at the station. And I said, he works at a station in Philadelphia, blah, blah, blah. And I left them to it. And I came back and there'd been some big turmoil in BAI as usual. 
And uh, next thing I know, Chris Albertson has moved to New York and is the head of BAI and was for many years, I believe, after well, that. You're, you're, you're uh, the, the, the host of a radio program on jazz that you were a giant fan of in Philadelphia. Uh, was a guest on your show at WBAI when you were a teenager and then became That's right. the well, head of... I was of... 20. Okay. I was 20. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive the, uh, the hyperbole. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I wonder, do you know if any of your, if the archives of your show exist? I, I've never, I've, you know, I stayed in touch. In fact, you probably have seen me talking about this, but you may have forgotten because I assume a person like you has seen the documentary on Bob Fass. Uh, I apologize, but I love hearing about things that I should have known about. Okay, Bob Fass had a show on BAI for years and years and years called Radio Unnameable. Mm -hmm. And there's a documentary by that name. Mm -hmm. And his whole archive is been on. Somewhere has been taken in by the film archive downtown New York, I think, or somewhere. But anyway, somebody connected with the if you, it's FAS, Bob FAS. Yeah, I'm writing it down. And there is, there is a doc, very interesting documentary, and I'm interviewed in it because I was on his show a number of times. I used to do little inserts and um, uh, that he would play late at night, and, um, and he was a friend of mine. And, um, and he's considered a pioneer of radio, of weird radio. Yeah, I wonder, can you tell the listeners who may not be familiar with uh, how radio has sounded in the decades in which you're familiar with radio, <laughs> what what was he doing that was important? Because it's sometimes easy to forget, you know, like I'm, I'm, I have a fascination with the idea that something that is now painfully obvious to everybody might have been an innovation, you know, as recently as the 1960s. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a complete innovation. He, I think it was every Friday or every Saturday night, Bob Fast would come into WBAI at either 11 or midnight and just take over the station all night long. Uh -huh. And people used to come in. He would invite musicians to come by. People would just come in, Put the, pull themselves up in front of a microphone, start playing. Other musicians would jam. Different people came in, read poetry. Um, you know, he would ask people who made shows for BAI to make him a little segment. And uh, um, and I used to do that sometimes. And that's the story that I tell in the documentary, which is. <laughs> an amusing but shameful or sort of embarrassing for a young guy who thinks he's hip. Uh -huh. um, uh, I made him a little 15-minute segment once, which was all about dope songs, like If You's the Viper and uh, songs that had references to smoking dope. And at this age, I think I'd had one puff on one joint. And, uh, and so I talked about these, I introduced these records in a kind of funny way. Right. And then I gave him the tape. And then the next time I came down, I ran into Bob Fass at the, at the station. And he said, oh, Joe, I'm going to play you something. 
and he had an air check of the show that the previous weeks before when he, they played my segment. And his special guest was a comedian called Hugh Romney, uh -oh. who later was famous as Wavy Gravy, uh -huh. the guy who was the, the host at the Woodstock Festival and became a kind of countercultural hero. But at the time, he was Hugh Romney, who was a kind of hipster comedian, stand-up comedian, a la Lenny Bruce kind of thing in New York nightclubs. And so he was the guest when Bob played my segment of Dope Songs. And Bob plays the end of my segment, and then you have this silence. And then Hugh Romney says, man, Joe Boyd is about as hip as day camp. It's <laughs> <laughs> your epitaph. Uh, how funny. So, yeah. So I was sort of mortified, but amused. Well, I think uh, if I, if I I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say you've, um, you've, you've done the work to become more hip in, since, yeah. those, since those years. Yeah. How funny. How funny for you to be mocked on the radio uh, permanently. Yeah. Um, well, but I, I appreciate that you were trying to do that work of making those connections. That's really interesting to me as a fan of your podcast, Joe Boyd, Joe Boyd's A to Z, where you take, take songs in a... All, not in an arbitrary order, but in a really uh, interestingly chaotic order because your podcast uh, begins with the approach of song titles in alphabetical order and sort of weaves together the meaning and the stories that are connecting those songs. Um, you know, not always. You don't always have to stick with that um, starting point. But it's funny that you've been doing that work uh, your whole life. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I like following threads, you know, just wherever they lead. You know, some some of those shows, some of the podcasts stick with the subject matter. Some of them stick with the artist who sang it or performed it or or the region or the style or something like that. But it always starts with something that kicks off an idea. I just like having, just letting my mind wander. Yeah, I so we know that there's an analog with this work uh, the way that you created your podcast with uh, the way you created your very first radio shows when you were a teenager. Okay. We know that there's, it's also very similar in some ways to how you write your books. Um, does it have any relationship to the, to records, to producing records? Sure. Because I think, I mean, I remember I was at South by Southwest one year about, 20 years ago, I think, and I was on a panel of producers and um, the host, the, the moderator of the panel was a guy who was like an agent or a lawyer who represented record producers. And there were all these other record producers who work in Nashville or L.A. or whatever. And they all started talking about pre-production and sometimes creating tracks before the artist even comes into the studio and bruce dickinson the kind of wild man of memphis record producing he was also on the panel and he and i were sitting next to each other we were kind of looking at these guys like who are these people and what are they doing what are they talking about and bruce dickinson said a wonderful thing he said i'll produce anybody 
I have one condition, though. I just don't make me go hear them first. <laughs> <laughs> and and I just said, you know, I would never dream of pre-producing, of pre-production, like getting a song really tightly honed so you know exactly what you're going to do when you go in the studio. To me, the dream is to walk into a studio with a bunch of great musicians. Maybe we know the song we're going to do. But some of the musicians maybe don't even know the song. Or maybe it's a group that know the song, but they aren't sure what song they're going to record that day. And we just say, okay, what are we going to do? Let's start. And you see where it goes from there. And some of the greatest things that have ever happened in the studio in my productions have happened by accident or by happenstance or by somebody coming up with an idea they'd never had before. Or, and I've always had that feeling that, you know, I, I sort of sometimes walk into the studio and think to myself, hmm, what are we going to do today? <laughs> I haven't really thought about it. And then you sit around with your musicians and you think, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And so the, the idea that things just unfold and they flow and you're never really at a loss for something good to do is the way I love working in the studio when making records. So I guess it's similar. Mm -hmm. It's related anyway. We certainly have the opportunity to tell those kinds of stories. You're, the story you just told me reminded me of your um, the episode of your podcast. I don't remember what letter it is, but the the record that you helped make that preceded the much more globally popular uh, Cuban music record. Oh, Buena Vista Social Club. Yeah. And just the idea of musicians in a room. Uh, right. How, how, uh, how getting the right people together in a room to do what they do in the right room uh, can, can have... Yeah, can have all the power because you you got the same musicians in, together in the same room as the Buena Vista Social Club uh, was like a year earlier, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, we were before. Yeah, we were before they, but they had a better idea commercially. Sure. And uh, and uh, in the end, I mean, that was and God, you know, I'm, I have huge admiration for yeah Nick Gold and what he did and um and that, but um, um yeah. No, it was an incredible experience to work in Cuba with those great musicians. And you you just had to let things happen. And things happen by surprise sometimes. That it reminds me the, of another theme of your podcast, which is sort of, um, I don't know if it's necessarily one that other people would pull out, but it's, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's me. But there is a... There's a thread going through every episode, or not every episode. There's a thread going through a lot of the work of the Joe Boyd's A to Z of like, I don't, this one was, this one got popular, you know, and this one didn't. And I don't know, and both of them are very good. Like you, you seem, you, you have a lot of, uh, you, you do a lot of philosophizing, I guess, or a lot of contemplation <laughs> on the, on the nature of, of popularity and yeah. success, I guess. Because, and I'm going to assume, I mean, I've listened to your show, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So please, you can, you can uh, redefine how you've been thinking about it. But it sounds like to me that you, you have episodes where you said, I, I love this 
record just as much as I love this other record. And one of them, you know, makes it into the top 100 canon and the other one is, is largely unknown. Yeah. I mean, the obvious example in my lifetime and my experience and my work uh, is Nick Drake. You know, I mean, when I worked with Nick, we put out records that nobody listened to and nobody bought. And now he's probably the most famous artist that uh, I ever worked with. And, um, uh, or one of the most famous anyway, um, and more beloved widely around the world, more passionately uh, adored by more listeners. And yet, you know, for a very long time, uh, until after he died, believing himself to be a complete failure, nobody paid any attention. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, that obviously is a, is a good object lesson <laughs> in terms of my experience. Yeah. Why, you know, the fact that something didn't sell doesn't mean you shouldn't play it to people and get them to listen to it. Yeah, because that took, um, am I wrong in assuming that that took 30 years for people to to buy no. the CD? No, not that long. No, no, no. That's just it when I mean, found out. Ten, ten years, yeah, 10 years. We're just talking about started, my experience as a, as, a, yeah. as a youngster. Yeah, it started, uh, it started to, about five or six years after Nick died, it began and over the next 15 years every year there was more and more right because i i caught the wave of uh knowing who nick drake was uh as a young adult and so for me that's the 90s so i caught i'm, right. I'm the one who caught the 90s wave um which maybe might, saw the volkswagen commercial yep which might be linked to that darn volkswagen commercial hooray for for the volkswagen yeah. commercial yeah um well this has been very nice, Joe Boyd. I wonder if, uh, I wonder, you know, I, I, it's, we are talking to one another in September of 2020 and it's a very strange time for, for people in the world. I, I, I have this desire to sort of, you know, it's like, there's a joke in my, you know, here at Radio Survivor that it's, uh, that the socially distanced, uh, everyone separate in their rooms connected to the internet has been great for podcasting and podcasters and we were yeah we were prepared for it um i've been thinking a lot though about how it's not great for musicians and music that there's so much of um i, I just watched a youtube video yesterday that i that i am going to reference where uh, a youtuber adam neely who's a younger musician and talks about he, he puts out these really very well done essays on YouTube about music. Um, he just referenced in the most recent one, uh, these apartment concerts that were very popular in New York city, uh, a moment before the pandemic sort of made, put mm. an end to them. And it's weird. I was thinking when I was thinking about telling them, telling you about these apartment concerts, I realized they might also, Oh, go ahead. I've been to one. Oh, That's good. I, just... I wonder, I mean, for one thing, I wonder if they are, if they are an important thing in New York just because of the, like, 
some an unfortunate side effect of 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 like real estate the real estate market that that there aren't as many places to play music in public that can't be well i think new york i mean i think it wasn't just new york where this phenomenon happened i know them as house concerts right they they happen all over the place i think uh all over america particularly but also i think in other parts of the world uh they were a growing phenomenon and um they they may be again because maybe you right. know in a small apartment everybody wearing masks um i don't know who knows whether that's going to reappear but i think new york it was particularly intense because new york became for a generation i think of acoustic musicians particularly in the folk world or the world of um, acoustic music singer songwriters etc became a very difficult place to find a, uh, a venue. You know, you were really, I mean, until City Winery kind of exploded into this monster that it's become, um, there were not that many clubs. A lot of, you know, the bottom line closed and all these little clubs where people used to, you know, be able to sing either turned into something else, turned into some other different kind of music. And I think people like, uh, people, um, you know, a lot of people I knew um, from my, also also older people, you know, it's like clubs want young, right. hot, up-and-coming up singer-songwriters. They're not so interested in what, you know, someone who never really got that famous but made some really good records you know, that has a following, um, you know, I, I think those, there's a certain older group that it suited very well, that sort of aesthetic of an Upper West Side apartment where everybody puts 20 bucks in the, in the hat and uh, you get to sit very close to the performer. Right. In those days, that was a good idea. Um, and... Um, and have an evening and listen because now you've reminded me this is not what i intended to talk about but it's it's uh like um i love music i love listening and i avoid going or in the previous world i avoided going out to listen just because of the volume of every of every music venue um mm. i once had a very accidental experience that changed my life where I went to a Portland, Oregon uh, art gallery and saw, I don't know why I ended up lucky enough to, to get my ticket because I don't, I don't have that opportunity as often as I would like. And uh, this art gallery was, was hosting a quiet music festival. And so it was a, um, a, you know, a dozen bands that all were playing so quiet that if one person in the packed audience turned to another person and started to whisper, everyone in the room could hear the whispering. Right. And right. Um, it created a, it was my, it's been uh, among the top, you know, for three uh, musical performances I've ever attended because of just the level of focus in the room. But also it's just, it was yeah. very pleasant to spend six hours in that room listening to music because it was uh it was so it was just easier to hear 
<laughs> it was great. Um, so I think house shows might have that advantage as well, that they're just not so loud. I, I Now I'm remembering also I once saw some jazz music in the 90s in Seattle where the band leader uh, very, very, very aggressively, and it made me really happy, told everyone in the bar to shut up for the next mm. song because because the next song was uh there was a going to be a trombone solo and the trombone is right. an acoustic instrument that is not very loud and he wanted everyone to listen so right and uh i thought that was one of my favorite things where the people in the well venue... i love i love hearing music without amplification it's uh it's great yeah um by speaking of portland oregon by the way i just i was trying to remember where uh I have very pleasant memories of a very nice venue there called The Woods. Hmm. Do you know The Woods? No, I do not. I'll look it up. 66637 Milwaukee Avenue. Oh. Um, Maybe it's not there anymore, but I played there with Robin Hitchcock. We used to do a tour. We toured America doing a show wherein I would read from my book on making music in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And Robin would sing the song appropriate to the chapter I was reading from, hmm. and it was fun. So he would sing Arnold Lane or a Nick Drake song, or you know, uh, uh, a Sandy Denny song or a Bob Dylan song or something. After I read, how nice! Uh, yes, I I looked it up. The Woods is part of history now. It, it closed. Um, oh, bad. It closed prior to the pandemic. It, it closed mm. in 2019. Um, so I could have been there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not entirely off topic here on Radio Survivor. The act of listening uh, yeah. to to music in public. There's there's so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> that are that are possible and it's it's uh it's a very strange cultural choice that um uh the maximum volume level is sort of the default for so many rooms to listen to music and uh yeah i i really and i you know it's very funny it i sound so i sound so much like an like a grandpa asking asking for more quieter music but um i i think i think there's room for it in the world some quiet music you know um now I think uh, I think a lot about whether or not we're going to have more uh you know it's it's not the weather for it but we but but uh, next spring there might be a lot more outdoor music so yeah yeah which will probably be amplified right heavily <laughs> sure so there you go well, my thanks again to Joe Boyd for joining us on Radius Survivor to talk about his podcast. Joe Boyd's A to Z is available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I have an interesting uh, question to ask, though. If you subscribe to Joe Boyd's A to Z on some podcast apps, you might... Some podcast apps privilege new material so much so that it's actually difficult (laughs) to listen to old shows um i might be wrong this might be me really flying off the cuff uh but that's it's a topic for a future show uh joe boyd's a to z is available uh wherever you get your podcasts and you can also listen to it directly 
online. There's a there's a player that you can play, and um, we'll have links to that work in the show notes for today's episode of Radio Survivor online at radiosurvivor.com. Today's episode number is 264. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, uh, feedback for us, our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. You can subscribe to Radio Survivor wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, the iTunes <laughs> you know Joe Boyd uh, name checked iTunes today made me so happy I don't uh is that still how people listen to to uh apps on their computer to, to music on their computer probably um well this brain fart brings me to uh the excuse <laughs> like now that the credits are over I just want to mention that uh, today's episode was recorded on um for the facts to get the facts right today's episode was recorded with joe boyd who was in london and i myself was in portland oregon we recorded on uh september 17th 2020 and uh, i just in the podcast at the end after i've done all of the credits i just wanted to mention that uh we the people of portland oregon in specifics uh and the people of Oregon, more generally, and then the people of the West Coast of the United States have been living with a an excessive amount of wildfire smoke uh, during this time period. It's actually been clearer uh, for a, for for several days now, which is a um, really amazing. I will never take a normal day of blue sky for granted again. Uh, the I was talking to a friend just the other day, down in Los Angeles, no less, who was not aware of how bad the air pollution was in Portland uh, during a, well, it was roughly an 11-day period. And it was so bad that I want to mention it in today's episode. Um, uh, I have uh, an extensive amount of privilege in that I did not have to uh, leave my house to work, uh, I didn't have to go outside other than to get groceries um, or by choice uh, to water the garden. But um, and I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to put a number on the on the level of air pollution. But it was so significantly high. I mean, for one, the visibility was terrible. For two, um, it has a really severe impact on mental acuity. Uh, for people like me especially, it lowered my recall for words, phrases, names. And, uh, you know, it's kind of silly to mention it at the end of the podcast, but I thought it was worth mentioning that if you noticed uh, that your host uh, was a little off his game or a little uh, distracted or a little weird and nostalgic, it was because 11 days of being trapped indoors with uh, literally toxic air quality. Uh, we had – it was really – and, and you know, I'm complaining, but I'm not complaining. It was, uh, it was a challenge for every single person who lives uh, in Oregon, and it was a challenge for everyone who lives on the West Coast. And, I, uh, you know, we, we actually 
had an episode uh, prior to this Joe Boyd episode where we discussed the fires um, in specific. We talked with uh, we talked with our guest on episode number two hundred sixty two. He runs a radio station in Vacaville, California, at a high school and middle school. An incredible radio station that we are huge fans of here on Radio Survivor, and uh, that radio station sort of is dealing with this double whammy of tra- of disasters where the wildfire uh, caused the evacuation of their town, but it also um, they are a school, uh, and here in many communities, as as most people know, in the year twenty twenty. That's also a school uh, that in California in the year 2020 is is practicing social distancing and doing distance learning. And that was a really – and that was an interview that I'm very proud of. Uh, that was the last one. And so the level of air pollution that we in Portland and uh, as well as other individuals on the West Coast – uh, but specifically, it got so bad in Portland that we we won. Uh, we were the worst air in the world. We we beat Lahore, Pakistan uh, for more than a day. I'm not sure what the numbers were. Um, but uh, it's worth mentioning. It wasn't the topic of today's show, and it would have been weird for me to mention it up front. I did tell uh, my guest, I told Joe Boyd, if I had trouble... Uh, thinking of something to please forgive me because um, at that point in the air pollution disaster that we were experiencing, um, the impacts on my ability to do my job were significant. It was starting to wear me down, and I'm very thankful that the air has cleared. My thanks to Joe Boyd for being our guest today on Radio Survivor. Uh, Show notes today, links to Joe Boyd's podcast, uh, Joe Boyd's A to Z, which again, highly recommended. Everyone should check out this five-year-old podcast because I love it. Uh, You can email us. Our address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. My name is Eric Klein. On behalf of Paul Reese-Mandel and Jennifer Waits and Matthew Lassar, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.